there's a cyber skill shortage. But are cybersecurity hiring and retention processes doing more harm than good to your organization? Questions we'll be tackling on this episode of the Cracking Cybersecurity podcast. I'm Anna Delaney, editor at TICE, and this week I speak with Vicky Gavin about recruitment, talent retention, and leading teams. Vicky is an advisor on security, privacy, and resilience. She was also CISO for The Economist, and with years of experience under her belt, I thought she was ideal to discuss these topics with. Vicky speaks with genuine warmth, passion, and clarity, and admits that it wasn't until she became a mother that she discovered how to be a good leader. It's the same skill set, she says, never forcing, but helping them to understand the world around them and be the best they can be. I love that. So let's look at the stats. Findings revealed in ISACA's recent State of Cybersecurity 2019 research says that 64% of respondents indicated that they were having trouble retaining qualified cybersecurity professionals. So I asked Vicky, what's going wrong? This was her response. I think it starts with the actual recruitment process. So um, in addition to the stat that you just shared, I mean, the other thing that horrifies me um, and my stats are a little bit out of date, but as of two years ago, only 10% of security professionals were women. Um, and, and so, and the numbers are equally bad for every demographic other than men. Um, and really, we've got to look at, first of all, why are we recruiting from such a narrow group? Um, that's, that's silly. Um, and then secondly, once we've got those people, how do we keep them? Um, so let's start with the recruitment. Okay. Now what generally happens, and, and this is not um, sanctioned research, this is just my chatting with friends. Um, when someone leaves, the, the hiring manager takes out the, the person who's leaving's CV and the job description and adds to the job description anything that's on the current person's CV. because person you have today is perfect. You just want another one of him. You know what I said? Him. Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, and, and over time, after you've recruited for that position two or three times, the qualification list grows and grows and grows and grows. And because in all likelihood the incumbents over that time have all been men, all of a sudden the CV becomes more and more likely to be um, to be of interest to other men. It, it is likely not to be of interest to some of the other demographics that you might want to get involved in the process. In an ideal world, what needs to happen is when somebody leaves, you need to have a look at that CV and say, okay, what are the minimum qualifications that I need from somebody to do this job? Because the flip side of getting somebody who has that great big long list is that they're not going to stay very long. I mean, you know, if, if they've done all of that before, how long do you think they're going to stay in your job? About as long as it takes for them to find somebody who's willing them to pay more, P sorry, willing to pay them more to do exactly the same thing. And 
And that's not what you want either, because then you're, you're just having to recruit every year or two for this same role. And it's a lot of effort to recruit, and it costs a lot of money. By looking for that minimum qualification, you bring in somebody who's going to stay with you longer. And if you're really smart, who can grow with your organization. Um, and you know, sometimes you get a dud. And you know, sometimes 18 months in, you're hoping they'll go somewhere new. But most of the time, when you bring somebody in like that, they actually choose to stay a lot longer, and they contribute far more. Um, it also means that your candidate pool is considerably larger. And studies have shown time and time again, the wider the candidate, candidate pool, the better the hire. So the interesting thing is I've always heard that well, men are just recruiting men because they relate to them. Not just men, but men from the same background, same educational background, etc., etc. But I haven't heard your case, you know, the, the fact that they, they add and add to the CV. That, that makes sense. I was going to say, well, yeah, it starts with the CV, but then at the, when you get to the interview stage, you've got to watch out for bias. Um, because bias can really derail a recruitment search. Um, what I've always done is I set up um, interview panels. Now, I, that doesn't mean there's a person sitting with a firing squad looking at them. I have my candidates see usually at least five different people. And each of those people is, is given a particular skill set that they are to be quizzing people about. What that means is that you've got five different biases playing into it. And with a bit of luck, they're going to cancel each other out. So you, you don't get that hiring somebody because they're like me. Because you know what? We all do that. I mean, when I interview someone who I really click with, I kind of don't pay as close attention to skills because we're having such a great conversation. And, and it's true of everybody. So by using a lot of people to get involved, you, you help to eliminate that bias. Um, you know, most of the time when I've been recruiting, I will usually get um, my, well, this is a couple years ago now, my head of audit to, to be part of it. And I ask him to look for people who've got that kind of mindset, the problem solving, the, the looking for the thing that's wrong. Because that's what auditors do. And so he's going to be able to sniff out those kind of qualities. Um, I always had my, my head of security quiz them about security matters and, and have a frank discussion about bits, bytes, sims, you name it, um, whatever the popular things are at the moment, and really make sure that the, the stuff they've said they've done, they've actually done. Um, somewhat surprisingly, I used to get my admin to interview them as well. Now, most of them didn't know she was interviewing them, um, she would pick them up from reception and offer them a drink and take them to the room and say I was going to be a little late and then sit and chat with them for 20 minutes. Um, and what she was particularly good at identifying were the people who were going to fit with the organization um, because they'd let down their guard with her. Yeah. Um, when I walk into the room, people are always on their best behavior because I'm the hiring manager and want to make a good impression. But people who are genuine are going to be just as nice to my PA. Um, and so 
you know, it was a really good way of assessing that. Um, and then I would usually have one of my junior staff interview them as well. The thought behind that is they are very good at assessing whether or not this is someone they'd like to work closely with. Um, but also, again, it tests how they approach someone who is less skilled than they are. And if I'm hiring for a very junior position, um, it then helps, again, to, to settle the nerves. Because one of the biggest things that goes wrong at interview is interviewers forget that they're there to try and hire somebody, not to try and exclude them. Um, and the first thing that you've got to do is make sure that the person who comes into the room relaxes and can give you their best. Because you, you don't want their worst. And people are always going to be nervous when they come into an interview. And if all you do is make them more nervous, you're potentially screening out a really good candidate. And what about the, the teams themselves? What, what, about, what do they want from you? Um, so, <laughs> yeah, once you've got them in the door, mm -hmm. then, then the thing is you've, you've got to keep them. And a team, per se, doesn't necessarily want anything from you. But each individual does. And that's the key. Every single person you hire is an individual. You, you can't treat them as a mass. It's never going to work. You have to understand what each individual wants out of life, uh, you know, what their particular uh, quirks and foibles are, what their loves are, what their hates are, you know, what, what gets them up in the morning and what turns them off. So that as things happen day to day, you can tailor the, the work that they get, the experiences they have, to give them the most benefit possible. It has been my experience that when you give people something to do that they love, they'll be good at it, and they'll do a really good job. And at the end of the day, that makes me having have done a really good job. So I mean, it's a win-win, but it's a lot of work. I mean, it, you really have to spend the time to get to know your people. You have to, you have to like them. You, you've got to put the effort in. The payback is huge. When you put that time and effort into your staff, they stay longer. Um, my longest standing employee was when I was working at The Economist. And this is across my entire career. He started with me, he was my first hire into my information security team, um, and he was with me for eight years. And incredible. It, incredible, and he succeeded me when I left. So I handed the reins over to him, and last time I caught up with him a couple months ago, he was doing a great job. And, and that's what you want to have happen. It also meant that for the last six years of my tenure at The Economist, I could go on vacation and did not have to worry. I had a team in place that I knew I could leave everything with and everything would be handled exactly as I would have handled it because that's how we operate day to day. Uh, and they say traditional retention methods are not working anymore, so that would be higher salaries or um, more training. 
Um, you mentioned if you give your individuals, the individuals in your team, room to grow, that's very important. How did you give them room to grow? Um, so fortunately for me, my team was growing. So each year it got bigger and bigger, um, which meant there was more and more opportunity. Um, I, I want to knock the higher salary on the head at this point. If the only reason people are staying with you is because you pay more, when you hit your ceiling, they're leaving. Um, that is a bad way to retain people. And in fact, I always made sure that when I was recruiting, I was not paying at the top of the street level. All right. uh, people never joined me for the money mm -hmm. because I wasn't ever going to be able to enter that race. So unless you want to be giving people giant raises every year, um, you need to make sure that they're joining for, some, for a reason other than the money. And that includes when you're retaining them, it's not just about the money. Now having said that, you've got to make sure that their salaries are keeping pace with what's happening out on the street. You know, I would two or three times a year benchmark my team's salaries to make sure they were right in the right ballpark. Again, keeping them probably in the lower half of salaries, um, but within the band so that they're not feeling hard done by. Um, but certainly not looking to pay more than you know, the Joneses next door. Um, but money is only part of it. I mean, you know, once we've got enough money to live on, the rest isn't going to actually incentivize you to do anything. In my experience, what it incentivizes people to go that extra step is, is that opportunity to do something they really want to do. Now, depending on their experience, a lot of times that's something they've never done before. And so you have to be quite careful. Um, you know, again, I ha always had minuscule training budgets, so I wasn't sending them out on a bunch of courses. But what I could do is partner with them on projects. I, I would have different members of the team work with me on various special projects, and we'd work together, and I would teach them a new skill, something they hadn't done before but really wanted to learn about. Um, and, you know, I'd let them do part of it and, you know, then we'd come back and I'd, I'd correct their work and explain to them how they might have done it differently. And, you know, a lot of times I learn a lot of good stuff doing that as well. Uh, because when somebody's doing it for the first time, they're looking at it with fresh eyes. And, and they often will take a, a non-traditional approach. And you look at it and you go, you know what? That's way better than how I've been doing this. Yeah, we're going to go that way. We're going to do that. And, and that kind of um, investment in people really, really makes them want to stay with you. Because they know that they, my team always knew, if a project was on the horizon that they really wanted to be involved in, all they had to do was tell me. And I, if, if it was possible, I would get them involved in that project. And that included projects that were in other areas in the company. Um, so, you know, if when my head of data privacy particularly wanted to get involved in a marketing project that was going on, I spoke with the head of marketing, explained the situation. He said, sure, we'd love to have her. And so she participated in that project and, and learned much more about the world of marketing than she could have any other way which also allowed her to be a much better privacy officer because she understood their day-to-day -day and could provide privacy advice that made more sense to them. 
So it, it's always a double, triple, quadruple win when, when you can help people achieve the things they want to achieve. But she obviously felt relaxed enough to approach you about that. She also felt confident enough to approach you. How did you achieve that atmosphere? How did you nurture that? You can never spend too much time with your team. Um, I always had, no matter how much how time consuming, weekly one-to-ones with every member of my team, from the most junior admin up to you know my um, head of information security. It didn't matter. I always made sure I had time for them. And time based on what they needed, not what I felt like spending. So if somebody was having a particular difficult time, it could be hours in the week that we would spend together working on something or talking it through or bouncing ideas, whatever the case may be. Um, so that's one side of it. Regular team meetings. Uh, my team was spread across three continents. So I had people in Asia, people in the US, and people here in the UK. And to have a global team like that and have it working requires a lot of extra effort in terms of communication. Um, there was, when one fellow joined our team, it drove him bananas because for the first three months he was having daily calls with his counterpart in the US. Mm. Not to do any work, just to chat. And and I sat him down multiple times till he actually got it and said, if you were working in the same office, you would be having those chats throughout the day. But you don't work in the same office. The only way you can make that connection is to, for the first little while, force it through the telephone. So much and all as it feels unproductive to you, it is extremely productive to our team as a whole. He looked at me skeptically, but thought, well, you're the boss, so I'll do what you say. <laughs> um, but it, does, it makes all the difference. I mean, it's not just me who has to communicate with the team. The team all need to communicate with each other. Um, again, because of that multiple geographies, I would bring the whole team together in London once a year for a strategy week. We didn't do a lot of strategizing, but. Um, we, you know, we, we came together, we ate together, we played together, and, and people at the end of the week left, again, having reconnected with their counterparts, feeling closer to them, feeling like they knew them. Um, never underestimate the power of having a meal together. And I don't mean a working lunch. I mean sitting down around a table and eating and conversing and, and just having a nice time. People who eat together stay together. And it's, it's been a tactic I've used since my first days as a manager. Um, the weight of your team's heart are through their stomachs. It's so easy to do. And people look at it and say, oh, that's, that's just silliness. That can't possibly work. But it does. Thank you to Vicky. Lots of useful advice there. And have you heard about our event, R3, Resilience, Response and Recovery Summit 2019? It's a one-day event focused on how to overcome the barriers to improve cyber resilience in your organization, as well as ensuring that your incident response plans guarantee the fastest possible recovery. We focus on the human in cyber resilience and how leading organizations use their people and their suppliers to improve their cyber and operational resilience. 
For more details, go to our website, that's tice.co.uk. It's on September 17th, 2019, so I hope you can join us. That's all we have time for this week. Do, do, do get in touch with us with any comments or questions. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. And we'd really appreciate it if you rate, comment on and subscribe to our shows. It helps other cyber cats find our podcasts. But for now, it's bye from us. And do join us next time for more cyber conversations.